Rare Cancers Australia, you're listening to Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. In today's episode, Dr. Emily will be speaking with Dr. Jay Perry and delving into the world of medicines and how they are made. Jay is an Associate Research Fellow based at the Illawarra Health and Medical Research Institute. He specialises in skin cancers and focuses on developing new treatments for patients within this group. This episode, Jay takes us into the lab and talks through the intricate and rigorous processes that lead to new medicines being developed and released for consumers. A reminder to all of our listeners, we at Rare Cancers Australia have a vision that no Australian should have to go through their cancer experience alone. If you, your caregiver or someone you love needs to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Jay, could you please introduce yourself and tell us briefly what your current roles are? I'm Dr. Jay Perry, and I'm a research associate at the Illawarra Health and Medical Research Institute, operating at the University of Wollongong. So I'm basically a basic cell biology cancer researcher, although that doesn't sound as basic as it as it may appear to be. Um, so my job is to essentially investigate uh, cancers and what makes them tick, because once you begin to understand that, you can begin to understand how to best treat them. So typically a day for me involves going into the lab or spending some time at the computer, scanning over genetic information to try and decipher exactly what is happening inside a cancer. Because the cancer itself is not one disease. It's, it's, it's a name given to a broad group of diseases, um, all of which have their specific mutational profile, which leads to that cancer being able to survive or perhaps evade your natural immune system or grow abnormally. You know, what makes a breast cancer uh, operate and, and grow uh, is completely different to what would make a skin cancer grow. Um, and that's why there is no, you know, one size fits all treatment for these cancers. So it's my job, as opposed to the clinicians who are, who are there treating, it's my job to begin the research and identify, building upon what's already known, what uh, future treatments could be and and the move towards personalised medicine. Did you, did you always foresee that you'd go into cancer research or is this something that has come to you a bit later in life? Um, definitely later in life. So I obviously always had an interest in biology um, that I was kind of fostered through high school mostly, but in primary school, you know, I was in, in love with bugs and nature and, and all aspects of that. I went into university in med biotech, which was, it was kind of just offered to me. I was, I was a bit uh, confused as to what medical biotechnology exactly uh, consisted of, but I was like, oh, that sounds like it'll, it'll, you know, be <laughs> challenging, but interesting. Um, and I did a huge range of subjects within that. Uh, I did like marine biology, ecology, but then like genetics and bioinformatics. Um, so I, I could really dabble into a lot of different parts of science and, and specifically biology. During my fourth year, you complete an honors project. So it's like a, like a mini PhD. And that was with uh, Dr. James Warman, which was actually in forensic entomology, which is using the study of insects and maggots to determine the post-mortem interval, how long the body might have been left somewhere following uh, potentially a homicide. Um, so I, I, was, I, was, 
I was in the lab for a year taking DNA out of maggots so that we could identify the species. And, um, that was, that was quite a, an odd thing I was doing at the time. Um, all the, given that like a lot of my education beforehand had been more on the medical route or pre-medical. Um, but it was during that year that my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer. As, as I got to the end of that year and I had to start making decisions about what I wanted to do afterwards, I thought, well, I'm in a position where I could literally do quite a, quite a few things with uh, my scientific endeavors. Um, and like, I'm part of a big family and everyone else, you know, is, is doing their own thing. And I was like, well, I don't really know how to, how to help. You know, you, when you're in those situations, you, you just feel useless. Uh, no matter how smart or capable or, or whatever, you, you, you feel useless. So to me, it was the, the most useful thing I could do was, well, look, I've got, you know, life has given me the opportunities and uh, intelligence to be able to pursue and potentially help such a thing. So it was after that, but even though I had a blast doing the fly research, I had to break it to that supervisor that I was going to do a PhD, but over in cancer research. So I approached one of the cancer researchers here at the uni um, and was like, pretty much just give me a cancer project. I swear I'll, I'll, I'll try and learn everything as quick as I can because most others would have already completed an honours year in, you know, that side. <clears throat> um, so, uh, yeah, but she, she, she really threw me a lifeline, was like, all right, well, here's, it will give you a project on cancer. So she took me on board without any skills. Um, and Wow. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of my way of helping uh, and 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 navigating through that process. Uh, fortunately, my mum, uh, you know, she had the mastectomy. So, well, not, not fortunate, but she had that. But fortunately, you know, it's, it's, mm. I think it's six years later now, and she and she's uh, doing great with that. There's been no signs of you know recurrence. So uh, that that was that was very <laughs> very positive and a relief. What you know, fantastic. She, um, she she was quite a, you know, fragile across those years, especially when you, up until that five-year mark, you know, people always, it's things often measured in five-year survival. So you you mm. spend that, those first five years just thinking any day now, I'm going to feel something um, and go to doctors and, and the nightmare will begin anew. So fortunately she, mm. she uh, you know, made it through all that and I gained a, Deeper wow. appreciation of what she was going through through doing my research alongside, you know, her her treatment. Really, yeah, that would be an incredible experience. Yeah. And now she comes to me asking me a million questions about, like, <laughs> you know, uh, but I ended up specialising more in skin cancer research uh, when I approached the uni about doing a breast cancer project. Um, even though they had done a lot of breast cancer things in the past, uh, it's it's almost a, a bit saturated in a way that there's, there's many, many researchers approaching that issue. Um, and she had just been presented uh, via a clinician potential project looking at um, skin cancer. So we decided to go down that avenue, um, which no one, no, for, for a very, very common disease in Australia, there's, there's next to no researchers uh, looking at this particular issue. Oh, Wow. Gosh, what a whirlwind um, career till now. That's incredible. So you're telling me that you're looking for different mutations that are that are relevant to different cancers. Is that right? Yeah. So there's, uh, I think there's about 10 or 11 main kind of ways that we break up uh, the mutations that support cancer growth. Uh, so it could be them evading the immune system. It could be them 
being able to uh, proliferate or that is divide indefinitely. Um, so if we are able to get the genetic information of a cancer or molecular information, we can see just exact what contribution to those different, uh, let's call them pathways, uh, what contribution they have that makes that cancer operate in that specific way. Yeah, okay. And so how do you go about getting the molecular information? Are you able to explain that really simply for us? Yep. So quite often, if uh, at least in the, uh, at the Wollongong Hospital, they will do biobanking, which is when a patient has a tumour taken out of them, whether it's primary or metastatic, quite often they'll be able to go and that tumour isn't just thrown into a bin somewhere. Uh, that tumour often gets uh, snap frozen in liquid nitrogen um, and then gets delivered to someone like me who's able to break apart that tumour and pull out the DNA or the RNA inside. Um, and that is the genetic code. You know, those ATCG little base pairs that let us know exactly what genes are operating as they should and what may, what mutations may appear there. So the way in which we specifically do that is, you know, I will mince apart these tumours literally on plastic dish, mince them apart and apply different chemicals which will draw the DNA out. And once we have that purified, we send it off to get sequenced at different facilities. Unfortunately, we don't have that facility here. Um, as people may be aware, uh, sequencing costs of DNA and, and genomes is quite expensive, um, but it's getting more and more uh, cheaper every day. Uh, you know, the Human Genome Project took the entire uh, planet's uh, contributions to try and uh, to resolve that over, you know, 10 plus years. And now we can get a patient's genome sequenced in, in a day. Um, but nonetheless, the cost is, is, is still quite significant there. So. When we break down exactly how these genes look and whether or not they have a difference in them. So it could just be as simple as, you know, in, in, in one particular gene that, so a gene is something that when it's read in your body uh, will produce a, a, a protein effectively. And the proteins are the building blocks that carry out everything that makes you, you. Um, so when I say if a particular, uh, cancer is, is caused from a particular protein being overexpressed or too much of that particular function happening, it's because there may be some sort of mutation in its gene that is causing it to behave in such a way. And that may just be that, you know, this base pair like that A may be a C or G may be a T. And so you compare these with the, the Human Genome Project sequences, do you? Is that how you determine what's wrong and what's right? Yeah, precisely. So we overlay a patient's genetic uh, information with the hum Human Genome Project, but we also sequence their blood as well. So their blood tends to not have any mutations in it. It's, it's considered, you know, your, your true blueprint, or we call it a germline controls. So uh, we're able to kind of overlay that information and literally line everything up and spot where that difference is. So, you know, it, it, it sounds like that could be, you know, a simple matter of like overlaying things. But when you look at the size of the genome, you're looking at, you know, billions of base pairs across all these different chromosomes. So it's a, it's quite a task, but now we have a lot of uh, um, advanced software machines and, and, and personnel that is able to help us complete that. I myself, I'm not <laughs> too much of an expert at the, at, it's called bioinformatics. Um, I'm not too much of an expert at that. And luckily we now have a bioinformatics on the team who's who's uh, very great at being able to 
scan through these genomes and and provide me with a simplified information. Um, you know, I can go to him with a question and say, oh, I wonder if this particular gene, which uh, might make a cancer grow fast, I wonder if that is, you know, misbehaving in the sample and he's able to draw that information out for me. Well, that's fascinating. So an area that, that we're kind of incorporating a bit more artificial intelligence into perhaps to make it a bit less tedious and, and long-winded? Yeah, I would assume there's a fair amount of machine learning, like, you know, as more and more genomes are collected and, and put onto these online databases. So quite often, like if, if you're a research institute like us, we don't necessarily have to generate all of this information, you know, brand new. We don't have to go and get all the samples from all the patients and sequence it because there's, when, when researchers do these studies, they publish all that information online and sure, they might have made a scientific paper where they analyzed a specific part of the, the, the genome, but they've put all of that raw data available for us to download. Um, and then we now, you know, back, back in the day, you know, you might, your team might have had to do all this by yourself and you might only have, let's say, 10 samples to work with. Now you can go online and for a specific cancer, there may be thousands and thousands of samples, which is very important because when we're talking about like, you know, let's just take the case of skin cancer, uh, there's not one skin cancer profile, right? It's, it's not like this is what skin cancer looks like and this is what a healthy human looks like. It's, it's no, this is what skin cancer from that person looks like. This is what skin cancer from this other person looks like. There's similarities generally, but there is quite a lot of, we call it uh, interpatient heterogeneity. So there's, there's a big difference between the patients, which is also why there's not only is there not one size fits all drug for all cancers, but even a particular treatment isn't going to necessarily work for a patient who's got a cancer. Um, someone else might have the same cancer, uh, but their mutational profile is a bit different, so they might respond better or worse to a particular drug. Coming up after the break, Dr. J talks about what benchside to bedside means and looks like in reality, and the important relationship between clinicians and researchers. But first, a message from our specialist cancer navigators. Hi, my name is Beth and I'm a specialist cancer navigator with the patient support team at Rare Cancers Australia. Our team understand that everyone's journey is different. So we are here to support those affected by a rare or less common cancer diagnosis by navigating you through some of the hurdles you may be faced with. For example, we can link you in with peer support which is linking you with other cancer patients who are going through a similar journey to yourself. We can also link you in with support groups that we have run for patients or carers. We also have the ability to link you in with clinical trials for your specific cancer type. We can link you in with specialist clinicians for your cancer type as well. So if you'd like, feel free, give us a call on 1-800-257-600 or email us on support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. As Dr. J has shared with us, genomic sequencing is an incredible tool that allows researchers to find those common threads between cancers. And as a result of this, identify more possible treatments for patients of today and tomorrow. If you'd like to learn more about genomic sequencing, check out our episode with Dr. Richard Tothill from Season 1. 
but not before we rejoin Drs. Emily and Jay back in the lab. Mm, exactly. Hence why we're approaching this advent of needing personalised therapies, really, because each cancer is is a unique, rare subtype, essentially, as per what you've just said, you know, each person having um, their own unique genetic makeup and, and different cancer mutations. Um, and I was just hoping that you could elaborate on how, what what you're doing. I mean, we hear this word, this term bench research used a lot. How does that then translate to developing personalised cancer therapies, you know, from, from the lab to the public? Yeah, so the, the term that might often get used is uh, bench side to bed uh, or bedside. Uh, so quite often the way that it will work is, you know, a, a doctor is able to get a sample from the bedside and give it to us, the researchers, at the bench side. But quite often, all of that data we generate is, is useless if we can't get it back to the bed uh, to the bedside. A, a specific example of uh, some of the best precision medicine we've done is uh, a patient we had about five years ago. Um, I went to the hospital, got his uh, uh, sample that um, he'd consented to donating to us for the research. Um, I was able to bring that back here and not only extract the genetic information, but I was able to grow his cancer in the lab. So we call that uh, a cell culture or a 2D cell culture. We're actually able to uh, indefinitely grow his cells in the lab um, on, on these little plastic dishes in an incubator. Um, and the benefit of having that is you can then begin to test drugs because when we say like, you know, in, in during preclinical development of a drug, you know, hundreds of thousands of drugs may get tested, but they're obviously not getting tested on patients because we don't have any clue yet of the of the safety of those drugs. We first want to actually determine, is there an effect? And then once we see an effect, well, is, is, is the drug going to be safe for a patient um, at the concentration needed to elicit that effect? Um, so I'm able to use these cell models uh, to test different therapies. And in the end, like, you know, after quite a lot of uh, attempts and experimental manipulation, you may end up identifying uh, perhaps a, a handful of drugs which appear to work. And then we can then go and relate that back to the patient's genetic information and say, well, yeah, they they perhaps had this gene which was mutated and, or overexpressed, uh, and that's why they're responding to that particular drug. And the goal is to shorten this process from, you know, potentially years to a matter of, you know, days or weeks uh, to identify and, and report back to the patient. So what would be incredible is if a patient was able to get a biopsy um, of perhaps their primary tumor, even their metastatic tumor, let's say they have a metastatic tumor that is just unresectable, right? The surgery is not going to help it. Um, the radiation may not be an option. Um, and, and perhaps it's not responding to chemotherapy, or they simply have no clue which chemotherapy to use, which may be the case for many of the rare cancers. Um, so we're able to hopefully shorten this to a process of a few days, uh, take a biopsy of that metastatic tumor, grow it up potentially, or even grow it into um, animal models, perhaps, if you have a clear idea of what you do think is correct test a, a, a lot of these uh, therapies and compare it to their genome and actually report back to the patient, you have this particular genetic profile, your cancer responded in the lab to these specific drugs, 
this appears to be the best course of action. Now, there's no guarantee that that is um, going to necessarily work, but it is like, you know, far better than trying to do this one size fits all approach currently where you have, you know, just, you're just relying on clinical data. So you may give a patient, you know, five fluorouracil and just say, well, this attacks rapidly dividing cells and cancer cells divide rapidly. It's like, well, you know, what else is dividing rapidly? Like you get all these off target effects. Um, if we know exactly why the cancer is there in the first place, maybe we can reverse that. And precision medicine is about getting that information to the patient in the shortest time possible. Yeah, that makes sense. So practically speaking, Jay, who brings you, you guys are at the end of working out the mutations for each cancer who then enables you to access the different therapies. Do the pharmaceutical companies come to you with different drugs to test against different mutations or how does that part work? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the way that we'll do that is uh, once we have a cell model established, uh, you can actually purchase uh, screening library kits. So I took these uh, cells that I had grown up from this patient. I froze them up and uh, flew them over to Singapore, where I used a facility over there to go and test. It was, it was close to 900 different drugs in, in just three days. We were able to look at that. Um, so they, they provide almost these uh, screening libraries of known anti-cancer drugs, uh, including some uh, new and experimental ones. So those kits themselves are made by pharmaceutical companies who have done their own uh, particular research. So they do massive, like these big pharma companies do massive, massive screening um, profiles where they have hundreds of thousands of potential uh, compounds that may, uh, may be effective. Um, they then narrow that down for researchers to use to a, a smaller list. And then I'm able to go and do those screens and then look at the data. And I can, I can tell straight away, you know, which drugs, uh, you know, showed some effect and which just showed absolutely no effect. Because if you're able to do that on a patient in a, in a short turnaround time, you'll be able to tell them straight away, there's no point putting you on like drug A if we, if we saw no response. Now, of course, there is a big difference between what the potential response in the patient might be versus what it is in the lab, but it's 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 the best starting point that we we have. And there are there are three D systems of cell culture, and we're moving towards more advanced systems ourselves, uh, organotypics and organoids, which are these kind of like rather than having it just grown in a two-dimensional plane in plastic, can we make it look more like a real tumor? Make it into a three D shape and 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 mimic. Uh, how exactly it's going to respond in the patient. Because that's a big reason why a lot of these uh, drug studies and preclinical trials often fail uh, is because they were observed to have an effect or no effect uh, in, in an environment which might not actually represent how it would respond in the body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. And and Jay, how does, how does this integrate then with clinical trials? Is this all before clinical trials start with, you know, their phase or possibly phase zero and, and phase one, two, and three, and so on? Yes. Yeah, so beginning like quite a few years out from a clinical trial, it, it, the drugs, drug discovery process is, is, is so long, as many people know, it, it can, it can take a decade or two decades to, to, to find an, or to observe something in the lab before it may be available for a patient. And, and the reason for that, um, that lag is the rigorous testing that needs to be done to ensure that, if you got, if you are going to invest time and money in, into a particular therapeutic, 
we need to make sure above all that it's safe, but then, you know, that it is going to be the optimal drug to use. Like you don't want to give a patient perhaps like the, the soonest available drug when another drug may have been the, the more appropriate choice. Uh, but yeah, so generally this process will take between five and 10 years. Um, you know, I myself have spent the past five years, uh, you know, using these cell models. Um, and then from that, you get to a starting point to begin preclinical trials, which is generally in using uh, mice as a model of disease. So you can grow tumors into the mice, um, either like, you know, subcutaneously, like on, on the hip, on the skin, or you could have it mimic the side of the body where it may be. Um, and, you know, it, it is an unfortunate uh, thing that these mice have to uh, often get used for this process, but it's unfortunately, there's just too much of a leap taking it from uh, in vitro, which is, you know, in the lab, I think it's Latin for on glass, um, and taking it into a patient. There's just too many unknowns there. So that's the preclinical side of things. You do these animal experiments, and then from that, you can begin your phase one and two clinical trials in, in humans. Um, and, and that's what uh, people may be more familiar with. But yeah, the, the, to get to that stage, there's already potentially been like over a decade's worth of research regarding that particular compound or a family of uh, compounds. And that's quite reassuring because it shows you that all the safety hurdles are definitely in place before they get to the public. Yeah, well, just 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 to continue on from that, like there is a chance that you know if you were if you were too excited about a particular drug and and did and did rush it through, you also need to determine well, okay, if if the drug is effective now and maybe it gets rid of the cancer, but who knows what particular, like if it's if it's targeting a specific protein, maybe if you target that too much, it could initiate something else that makes the uh, cancer more aggressive if, if it was to come back. Um, maybe it may even promote the development of different cancers. And this has been seen with uh, compounds in the past. They can lead to the formation of other cancers. Oh, goodness. Yeah, another thing to consider. Jay, you mentioned before translational science or translational research. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? So translational science is about breaking down the barriers between clinicians and researchers. So it's quite often been that, you know, researchers will go and do this research, publish it, throw it out there, and then we just somehow expect clinicians to uh, decode what we've done and, and go and implement that. So translational science is about breaking down that barrier and bringing clinicians on board into research and uh, conversely bringing researchers into the clinic. So I work alongside Dr. Bruce Ashford. He's a head and neck surgeon um, here, at, uh, here in Wollongong. And he was really instrumental in this project, actually. He approached the uh, university, he approached my supervisor and said, look, I'm sick and tired of uh, handling these surgeries, uh, they're, they're, they're terrible, they're disfiguring, uh, you know, and, and nothing's changing from his end, right? He's, he, he's effectively, he's doing, he's doing triage on these patients. Um, whereas researchers are the ones who may begin to go a step closer to that not ever being necessary. So he approached my supervisor and said, right, I want to do something about this. I want to do a PhD. Um, so he began that and that's, that's pretty soon after I came on and, Having that clinical link really 
enabled us to do things that we might not have been able to do otherwise. You know, we were able to uh, have contacts in uh, at Southern Medical Daycare Center who were able to provide us with uh, chemotherapeutics, which otherwise can be very costly to obtain. Um, so sometimes when a patient's undergoing a round of chemotherapy, they may not be given the entire dosage. So we're able to almost take the, uh, the scraps of those uh, chemotherapy vials and use them uh, here in the lab. Um, so you help break down barriers there. Uh, this uh, surgeon enabled me to be able to go into the operating theater many times. I, I felt that, and we both felt that it was very important that researchers don't lose sight of what they're doing it for. It was important that I go into the clinic and, and see these patients. I used to attend the uh, fortnightly multidisciplinary team meetings at the hospital to try and get my head around all the clinical side because you know we're we're, we're all fighting the same war, and there's 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 no reason why we should be separated. Obviously, the reason that we have separated over the years is just because all of these tasks are, are, are quite often too complex. You've got to try and find ways to, uh, to find ways to help each other. But yeah, being able for someone like me as a researcher, rather than just being stuck in a lab, to be able to go into operating theory, and and witness the the exact you know sites where these are coming from and 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 the effect that these has on patients because you know from a researcher's perspective you could just say well let's give them ten different chemotherapy drugs that'll that'll get rid of their cancer right and it's just like well you're forgetting that there's a patient attached here and and and, and families and and such a, such a regimen you know and it might get rid of the cancer but it's going to have some quite severe effects. Um, and at the same time, clinicians need to have us researchers because then they're never going to be able to move forward and identify what new therapies to use. I mean, medical oncologists, uh, it's part of their job to con constantly be on top of the new research. Um, but yeah, like having, having such a strong link is, is going to be one of the most important things uh, over the next 10, 20 years in, in establishing success in cancer treatment. Yeah, that's incredible that you that you work so closely together. So, do you find that this whole process of doing, getting your research towards, um, so to, towards fruition, to, towards finding um, out some new mutations or uh, working out personalized cancer therapies, is moving a lot quicker now that you can use this translational model? Yeah, definitely. We're, we'd be blind without the clinicians quite often because we get so, um, you know, wrapped in our own little, you know, nerdy pathways trying to figure out things in the lab. And we, we quite often, you know, we, we might have the clinician come into our fortnightly meetings and just say, no, that'll never work because uh, we've, you know, they, they used to try drugs like that, but it has an off-target effect on this or, you know, patients, you know, whilst it'll kill the tumor, it, you know, the patients can't tolerate it, especially for the skin cancers we look at. You know, this is a, a disease that you get from lifetime exposure to the sun. So many of these patients are in their 70s, 80s, 90s. They have so many uh, comorbidities or other diseases present at the same time. Um, they might have already had a history of having chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So there's no guarantee that, you know, if we find something in the lab uh, and, and get excited about it, there's no guarantee that it's going to work on the specific type of patients we're, we're dealing with here. So having the clinicians there to kind of uh, bring that to light is 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 critical. Like there's there's definitely, I can, I can think of multiple instances where we would have 
probably pursued a, a project for months um, had they not, uh, you know, been at those meetings and then let us know about those things. And at the same time, um, you know, I've, 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 I've heard clinicians tell me that they've, you know, changed sometimes their, a bit of their practice based on results that they observed for me. I think there was one circumstance where I had a, I, so I was growing up a patient's uh, cancer as a cell line in the lab, and I wanted to see what this cell line might look like after it was exposed to radiation therapy. Um, and then maybe that could serve as a model for patients who have a tumor that comes back after they've had radiation therapy. And the genetic profile, so I, I literally had the, 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 the cells on plastic in the lab, uh, took them over to the hospital, put them in the same machine that someone would get their, ex, uh, so their uh, radiation therapy done with, and then brought it back here and tried to grow up the cells that did survive the radiation. Because you always get some cells that survive radiotherapy. That's why the the scheduling of uh, radiotherapy is fractionated across like normally it's like it could be two grays of radiation uh, over 30 days um, to, to try and capture all the cells at, a, at some point in that in those 30 days. Anyway, so I did it once and just that one time of, of blasting the cells with radiation, their genetic profile, um, it, it changed quite a lot. Um, and when I passed that information on to one of the clinicians we worked with, he was uh, particularly intrigued by that. So he had a patient who I believe had a recurrent disease and he wasn't a candidate for immunotherapy because they, I believe they had the histology slides of his primary tumor and they looked at that and they said, no, he's not going to respond to immunotherapy because he has this specific, you know, expression profile or mutational profile. Um, but then the clinician who I'd spoken to, he, he told me about, he thought about what I'd seen and that there was this massive difference following radiation therapy. So he thought, hmm, I wonder if the tumor has potentially changed given that the patient had radiotherapy. So they went and biopsied it and, and had a look at the expression of the immunotherapy markers on the patient um, at that point in time. And the levels had changed enough to a point where he was now a candidate for immunotherapy. And, and last I heard, he was then placed onto the immunotherapy and, and was responding well. So uh, perhaps if me and that clinician had not had that link, they might have just relied on the primary biopsy and, and not have uh, gone down that route. That's incredible. So radiotherapy can change the genetic profile of the cancer and thus what the lesson is to continue doing genetic profiling of tumours throughout treatment. Is that is that what we learn from that? Uh, not throughout treatment because the goal of radiotherapy is to hopefully shrink the tumour or, or ablate any cells that might be remaining. So it would be hard to try and get repeat biopsies uh, as you're going through the course of treatment. But if for a patient, let's say the radiotherapy does not get all of the cells and uh, let's say two years later the cancer comes back from one of those cells that was just laying dormant, because its DNA has been you know, affected by the radiation therapy, it may no longer respond either to the radiation therapy or drugs that it may have responded to in the first instance. Uh, that's why it's uh, very important that when doing the radiation therapy in the first instance, there's enough of a dosage, a tolerable dosage given um, over such a period of time to try and get rid of all the tumour. Quite often now they will combine radiotherapy uh, with um, 
uh, chemotherapy as well to make the cells sensitive to the radiation more. Um, I published a paper earlier this year actually looking at uh, something called a nanoparticle, which is like a, a, you could think of it as like a heavy piece of metal um, that we could give to a patient and that'll just get taken up into their tumor because the tumors seem to uh, readily take it up more than other tissues. And then when you fire the x-rays or the radiation at the tumor, these little metal particles that are now inside the tumor are kind of like acting as magnets and they're saying over here, over here. So the it, it brings more of the x-rays to that site. Um, and, and we saw that that actually resulted in uh, dose enhancement, which is meaning more of the radiation went to the site and damaged more of the tumor. Um, at least we saw this in in the in the the lab form of such an experiment. So we've published on that. Um, so that's a particular thing that you may see in uh, radiotherapy moving forward, not just chemotherapy, but potentially other uh, biocompatible and safe um, particles which will actually enhance the effect of the radiation. Gosh, that's fascinating. Well, I could talk for hours about this, but um, we do need to wrap up, Jay. <laughs> So, Jay, I'd like to find out, We I, I often ask on these podcast episodes, um, the people I'm interviewing, what their favourite book, novel or podcast is. So do you have one of those, one or the other? It doesn't have to be all three. What do you read or listen to? <laughs> I am... I- I'm a big podcaster uh, because the time we have in the lab, you can put on headphones and, you know, quite often we're doing very repetitive uh, motions. Um, so, yeah, pod- podcasts are a great way to, to get the day going. Um, surprisingly, I don't listen to too many science-based um, podcasts. I, I think that's it's one of those things where it's like you don't, wanna, you don't want your hobbies to necessarily overlap with your career perhaps. Um, so I mostly listen to a podcast from an Australian trio called Do Go On. Uh, they're a Melbourne-based uh, comedy trio who do, they take it in turns every week to report on a different uh, topic, be it a historical event or a person, and they kind of just inject their own amount of humour. So that's perhaps one of my favourite ones. And uh, Joe Rogan, I listen to him a fair bit. That sounds great. I'll have to check them out. I've not heard of those ones. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Jay. We, um, we really appreciate that you could tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day life or, and work entails and, and why, you know, how, how you came to this point and what it means for people at the other end of, of getting the cancer treatments. You know, I know speaking from, from that side of things, you, we don't meet the researchers behind the scenes, but we're ever grateful for the work that you guys do. So thank you very much. There was a it was a good quote. I think I heard it back when I was watching that TV show House, actually. And it was something along the lines of uh, surgeons and clinicians. They're in the trenches in this battle, uh, doing triage as best as they can. But it's it's really the researchers who have the chance to end the war. Um, and we can't do any of that without, um, you know, the vast amounts of public support. I mean, everyone's in this fight together. And you know, the, the, the charitable donations, we, we get um, a lot of uh, help from the Illawarra Cancer Carers. So shout out to them because they're just incredible there. It's literally like, you know, bucket donations to that, to that group that have enabled us to do so many, acquire so many necessary uh, tools and instruments here to allow us what we need to do. So it's, it's not even all just um, government funding or, or anything like that. Like it's, it's literally every, every, Every action from every person counts. Uh, I think down at the uh, local local Dapto markets I go down to, there's a there's a man who 
plays the keyboard down there every week and he's got a little bucket out um, trying to raise funds for for the institute we work out of. So, you know, literally everyone's doing their part. So we, we as the researchers, we thank the community members for all their support. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you very much. And um, I hope the rest of your day is productive. Enjoy those podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Thank you very much. A big thank you to Dr. J for breaking down the concepts and activities that take place during such a technical and important process. We hope you got as much out of his insights as we did. Thank you for tuning in today and we look forward to having you join us again next time when we speak to RCA's Dr. Amanda Ruth and learn about what the future holds for cancer treatments in Australia. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr. Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Narrative writing and mixing of today's episode by Alexander Smith. Reporting by Dr. Emily Isham. We are edited by Christine Coben and myself and our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening. We'll be back shortly with our next episode.